today we're starting a short three-week sort of mini-series on baptism, on baptism, okay? So a couple of words of introduction on why we're going to do that. Some of you, as you hear that, maybe that sounds a bit odd for you about why are we going from sort of exodus to baptism. That seems like a pretty big jump, a pretty sort of maybe even random kind of leap to go from the shores of the Red Sea to now talking about baptism. But here's what I want you to hear. It's not as big a leap as you might initially think. And here's why. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2, here's what the Apostle Paul says. You can just hear it. Paul says, For I want you to know, brothers, and he's writing to Christians, that our fathers, he's speaking about Israel, were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, that's the Red Sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. See, the Apostle Paul is writing in the letter to the Corinthians, a letter in the New Testament. He's writing to Christians, in fact, to a young church plant like ours, and he's calling on them to look back to their forefathers, the people of Israel, as an example for their own life and faith. And when he does that, when he calls them to look back, he likens Israel going through the waters of the Red Sea to what happens to Christians as they go through the waters of baptism. In fact, he, he thinks there's such an analogy here that he calls the whole Red Sea scene the baptism of Moses. Now, we're not spending all of our time here on this one verse, and so I won't go through it much, but what I want you to hear is just this, that when the Apostle Paul thinks back about the Red Sea, the metaphors and images and realities of that scene cause his mind to immediately race forward and think about baptism. He thinks about a people who are going from death to life. He thinks about a people who enter into the waters slaves and come out of the waters free. He thinks about a people who are, whose bondage and old way of life and former realities are buried in those waters and they emerge out of those waters into new life, a new people, a, a new creation. He, he thinks about those waters, and those waters represent their salvation. In fact, all of it is happening even through Moses, their mediator, the man through which they experience that salvation, and so he calls it the baptism of Moses. And for Paul, he can't think about those realities and what happened to them then without simultaneously thinking about what happens to us now. And seeing such a tight connection between the two, that when Christians are baptized, the same things, the same realities happen. That we go from death to life. That likewise we go into the waters and our old way of life, Romans 6, is buried under those waters. And our slavery is done and we emerge out as new people, a new creation new unto the Lord. We belong to the people of God. We're incorporated into not Israel, but the new Israel, the church of Jesus Christ. And so he sees these analogies, and, and, and like Moses, we have a mediator, only a better and greater and truer mediator of a better and greater and truer salvation. And so we don't participate in the baptism of Moses. We have the baptism of Jesus. All those realities that occurred for Israel at the Red Sea occurs for Christians at baptism. And so for Paul, 
Here's what I want you to hear. That thinking about the Red Sea, Exodus 14, Exodus 15, is a prime and perfect opportunity for him to start thinking about baptism. And so we want to do the same thing. We want to follow the pattern of Paul. And so the scriptures give us warrant and permission to go from the shores of the Red Sea in the Old Covenant to the shores of baptism in the New Covenant. The scriptures give us warrant and permission to go from the waters of the Red Sea to the waters of baptism. We're also taking these three weeks to try and talk through baptism because we need to. Because we need to. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus commanded, as he was ascending to heaven, his last words recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, is that his disciples were to go and make other disciples of all the nations, and when these people become disciples, they were to be baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they were to be taught all that God had commanded them. And so if this was what Jesus left the earth commanding, it's a big deal, and it's important. It's a commandment from Christ and we have never talked about it here at Sadma Road. And so we need to. We need to think through this and talk through this. And so what we're doing in these three weeks is sort of taking our first crack at this whole conversation. If I'm honest, part of me feels like I really wonder what it will feel like if 10 years from now we revisit this whole thing with a team of other godly pastors beside me to help us think through this whole thing. We can't wait 10 years. And so I'm taking the first crack at it now with the hope that with you we will mature and deepen in our understanding of the whole thing. And to be honest again, if I were completely honest with you, part of me had wanted to avoid this thing for as long as I possibly could because of how divisive this whole thing can get. Sometimes I've, I've thought maybe I'll just gather everyone at Seven Mile Road, the adults, the babies, the children, and everyone, and we'll turn on the sprinkler system and get everyone wet some of you will be drenched, some of you will be immersed, some of you will be sprinkled. Adults, children, everyone will get wet and then we'll just leave and call that a day. Some of you are looking up to see if we have a sprinkler system. <laughs> we don't, I checked. We can't do that, nor do we want to. And so what we do need to do is walk through this together. Think through this together. And today, as we kick this off, what I want us to consider is how do we go about doing that? How do we go about approaching a topic like this one? What spirit, what mindset, what frame of mind should we bring into a conversation like this one? I'm not so much trying to plunge into baptism today as trying to orient ourselves to what does a community, a young church like Seven Mile Road, what, what's our mindset and spirit and heart and mind frame supposed to be as we enter into a theological issue like Baptism. As I mentioned already, baptism has historically been a very divisive issue within church history. Sometimes Christians have done this well, where Christians have dialogued and debated and disagreed and landed on different sides of this issue and done so amicably and well. Many times, Christians have done this poorly and have botched the whole thing, and have literally, in church history, killed one another, shed blood, drowned one another under the waters over this issue of baptism. Fortunately for us, no one's killing each other today, but the conversation is still as lively and passionate as ever before. So one of the things I want us to do as we think through this, here's what I want to say off the, right off the bat. 
The Bible does not speak with equal clarity on all issues of doctrine and faith and theology. I'll say that again. The Bible does not speak with equal clarity about all issues of doctrine and faith and theology. Some things are crystal clear in the scriptures, and other things good people who love Jesus Christ have dialogued and debated and disagreed for thousands of years, because the scriptures do not speak of all things equally. Now, as I say that, I can imagine how that might sound alarming or a bit concerning. It's not. In fact, you know this to be true. All I'm trying to say is what you already know, which is that some things in the scriptures are crystal clear. They're primary. They're what everyone agrees on. And other things are secondary. And there's room for dialogue and disagreement over it. You might call them primary things and secondary things. Or one helpful metaphor that a pastor put forth is things that are in the closed hand and closed fist or things that are in the open hand, right? When you think about a fist that's closed, like a fist that's about to fight, these are, when you're ready to fight over something, you close your fist because you're not budging on these things. These things do not move. These things are not up for debate or dialogue or discussion. They're closed. And the scriptures have lots of closed fist-like things. For example, if we talk about Jesus being God, his divinity, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, God being triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, those things are not up for debate. They're not up for discussion. They're not up for dialogue. They're in a closed fist. We fight over those doctrines. We will never give an inch of compromise on those things. And in fact, if you go out of that hand, you've exceeded the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. You've gone into another religion. Does that make sense? At the same time, there are things that are open-handed, where Christians have dialogued and disagreed about how it happens. So for example, Jesus' second coming. Is he coming back? Closed fist. He is coming. He will come again. He will rule. He will reign. He will judge. He will be king of kings and lord of lords. Now, when is that happening? How is that happening? How many years will it take? Will he come and then reign for a thousand years? Will he reign for a thousand years? And then there's disagreement. And Christians who love one another, who are on the same team, have disagreed about the specifics of it. Did God create closed fist, primary issue? Absolutely. We do not budge. God is creator. Now, how did that happen? In over how much time did it happen? What were the mechanics of creation? Christians who love Jesus, who are on the same family and on the same team, have disagreed on it for thousands of years. So it is with baptism as well. Is baptism important? Absolutely. Closed fist. All Christians everywhere agree. Now, how does it happen? To whom does it happen? When does it happen? How much water is used when it happens? Christians who love Jesus, who are a part of the same team and the same family, have disagreed for literally thousands of years. Does that sort of make sense? What I'm trying to say is that there are some things in the scriptures that are primary and some things that are secondary. Another way that's been put forth that might help you to understand this is it's sort of the difference between state borders and national borders, right? State boundaries mark off a different place, but it's still within the same country. National borders mark out a different place. So for example, if you get in your car today and drive north, you may pass into the boundary of the state of Massachusetts. 
When you get there, you realize quickly it is a very different place than Pennsylvania and Philly. Right? You go into Massachusetts, you spend some time. It's a very different culture with very different pe people. Nobody there knows how to say the letter R, right? So they say silly things like we park that car, we go to school in Harvard, and then they look at me like I'm the foreigner, right? So you go to Massachusetts, completely different place, and yet, same country, same government, same president, same, on all the essentials, unity, on all the things that are secondary, diversity. But if you were to get back in your car and drive straight north from Massachusetts further, and now you go into Canada, why you do that I don't know, but say someone wanted to go to Canada, now you're outside the bounds of the national borders. Now you're in a different country with a different president, different government, and different culture, and different language. The whole thing is different. So it is with the church. You've got things that are primary that are like national borders. You exceed those bounds, and now you're in a different religion. You're in a place that no one else in Christianity is in. But within things that are secondary, those are like state borders where Christians and churches from various traditions and various denominations and various churches do things differently. Same team, same family, one nation, the Lord's, but doing things differently. So, so it is with what we do, right? For example, every Sunday we confess together the Nicene Creed. This creed that was formulated by Christians in 325 AD or so. So for thousands of years, Christians across the globe have been confessing the national borders, the closed fist things of their faith. Right? Every week when we speak this creed, we're saying a creed that every Christian on the planet could say in unity with us. So today itself, you confessed, those of you who believe, we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of our sins. Is baptism important? Is it closed fist? Is it a national boundary? Absolutely. But how does that happen? Is it to babies or is it to adults? Is it by pouring? Is it by sprinkling? Is it by dunking or immersion? How, how does that work? Christians have disagreed for thousands of years. When, when you talk about the practice of baptism, you're in state borders as opposed to national borders. Here's the unfortunate thing that happens. Hear me. The unfortunate thing that happens within Jesus' church is that we take things that are secondary and make them primary. We confuse national and state borders. And so we'll say things, even about things like baptism, we'll say to other people who believe in Jesus Christ, who have repented of their sins, who have trusted in Him, if you don't see this the way that I see it, and if you don't do it the way that I do it, if your practice is not like mine, you're on a different team. You see how we can confuse those two borders? We can take things that are state borders, secondary, and make them primary and push people out of the team if they don't see it and do it exactly the way that we see it and do it. That happens all the time. We can remove faith in Christ, repentance, the Holy Spirit indwelling in them and say we have nothing in common with you because you don't see this the way that I see this. Now, let me not talk about just church history generally. Let me say this for us, for you specifically. 
Many of you sitting in this room who grew up in the church, who come from different backgrounds and traditions and, and churches, you know that for you, baptism was the issue. Not an issue. It was the issue. It was the national border that defined who you were and everyone outside was on the outside as though they were a different team, a different family, as though they had a different God than you did. And sometimes that became the hill on which you and the people around you died. This is what we are about. And if you're honest, hear me, if you're honest, you bring some baggage into this conversation. You bring your own baggage, your own upbringing, your own background into the conversation. Let's just walk through our church. At Seven Mile Road, some of you have come from churches and backgrounds and traditions where baptism is what made you a Christian. Hear that? Baptism equals making you a Christian. And so whether you were an infant or whatever it was, as these waters were poured over you, somehow the theology was that there was some kind of magical, mystical, spiritual, religious power. And without repentance and faith, you became a Christian. Theologians call it baptismal regeneration. Just fancy language for the idea that these waters by themselves had the power to take you from darkness into light and make you a Christian. The kind of thinking that seeps down to impact even the way that we see children or, or you see your children. The kind of pressure that's put on to say, listen, you've got to baptize your babies because God forbid something happens to them. If they're not baptized, they're going to hell. Right? Maybe you've heard that thinking in your upbringing. So you have to baptize because doing this assures you heaven. Not doing this assures you hell. And so this act is assigned with such We'll call it salvific significance. The idea that there's salvation so closely connected to it that this act itself becomes all-powerful. Right? This act itself makes you a Christian. And all of that, hear me as, as clearly as I can say it and as humbly as I can say it, all of that, though there is not a single verse in the Scriptures that would say that any of that is true. All of that, though there is not a single verse in the scriptures that would say that these sacraments or these signs in and of themselves carry converting power and make you a Christian even apart from repentance and faith. And tragically, what often happens is that it leads to you yourself being blinded to your own need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ because you figure something was done to you 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Tragically, what happens is you begin to not see your own need for repentance and true faith in Christ because your parents did a religious deed over you. And so rather than trusting in Christ, you trust in what was done for you some 30 years ago through that act. Others of us come from churches and backgrounds and traditions where baptism wasn't necessarily seen as what saved you, but it was just part of the tradition, part of the culture of the church that you were a part of. And so it carried little more weight than just a tradition that you do. Your parents baptized you because that's what parents do. If they go to church, they baptize their babies, and so they baptize you. And tragically, that has produced sort of this nominal Christianity, this name-only Christianity, where everyone gets the water sprinkled and no one is pushed forward to true repentance and faith. 
It becomes a religious ritual. When this is done wrongly, it's, it's just another part of being born. So when you're born, your parents name you, they bring you home, they show you to family, they do some other traditions, and they baptize you as well. Because that's what you do. It becomes tradition, void of meaning. Let me say, for others of you who are here at Saint Road, you come from a very different background, tradition, church upbringing. The people you were around with were so turned off by all that mystical baby baptizing, you swung all the way to the other side and reacted against those baby baptizers by stressing the importance of believer baptism or adult baptism in such a way that baptism became essential for salvation. You reacted so strongly against it that if you were not baptized as an adult, you were lost. Irregardless of faith in Jesus, repentance of sin, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, if you were wrong on this, you're wrong about the whole thing. You're on a different team. You have a different God than we do. Without meaning to, baptism became essential for salvation. That apart from it, you could not be saved. And somehow everyone who viewed this differently than you did was somehow a part of a different team outside of the national borders that you decided to draw. And tragically, when this is done poorly, adult baptism or believer baptism just becomes code for, listen, when you reach a certain age, you better get dunked. Because all the other kids are getting dunked, and if you don't, everyone will look at you funny. And if you're honest, some of you know that you knew at 13 just about as much as an infant knew at three days because neither of you had any idea what you were doing. When it's done wrongly and poorly, it is just as cultural and traditional, and it's not part partnered with repentance and faith. It's just another rite of passage, only instead of doing it at eight days, you do it at 13 or 14 or 16 Perhaps the weirdest part of all of this is that often many of us have strong, closed-fist opinions and stances of the whole thing without any real serious study of the other side. Right? We are digging our roots in and we know what we believe without ever having studied or thought through the other side. And often what you find is each side has a verse that they'll run to and cling to. So the believer Baptist will run to Mark 16 and say, listen, it says believe and be baptized, clear as day, case closed. 2,000 years of church history, it has been a waste. Or you run to the infant Baptist side and they'll run to Acts 16 and go, you see that? The household got baptized. I swear there was a baby in that household. And so case closed, clear as day, no need for 2,000 years worth of church struggle. This is simple. And each side lobs a verse at the other. There's a saying that says every heretic has his verse, right? And so everybody's got a team verse as a banner that they put over their side. Might I propose to you, as we get into this study for three weeks, men and women much smarter than us, much godlier than us, much better than us in every way, have studied through this and wrestled through this and disagreed for thousands of years. They've landed on different sides. For those who lean towards infant baptism, that would include men like John Calvin, Martin Luther, Jonathan Edwards, J.I. Packer, John Stott, Tim Keller. That is not a bad team to be on. 
For those who lean towards believer baptism, that would include men like Charles Spurgeon, William Carey, Billy Graham, Chuck Swindoll, John MacArthur, John Piper. That is not a bad team to be on. And here's what I want you to hear. That's the point. They're all on the same team. Do not part the two as though they are different families or different teams with a different God. They are all believers in Jesus Christ who believe in baptism but land in the specifics of it in different places. So what I want to do as we enter into this is plead with you, do not do so arrogantly, but ask God to give you a spirit of humility, to approach this issue with humility, to acknowledge that men and women far better than us have struggled with this, and we will also. We are not in one afternoon or in three weeks going to solve what Christians better than us have struggled with for 2,000 years. I want to say this also. If you're new to church today, I get how weird this whole thing can be, right? I'm, I'm sort of throwing you into a family conversation, and we're a bit of a dysfunctional family, but what family is it? So welcome to our family. We have a very good father who heads the whole family, and that's the only hope we've got. Because this conversation, I want you to hear, is an inter-family conversation. It's not two families. It's one family talking through the specifics of it together. So here's what I want to do. I want us, before we immerse into, pun intended, get it, immerse into the study of baptism, I want us to consider how we're to even approach a topic like this. How is a young church supposed to handle theological disagreement? In the coming weeks, what I want to do is next week, we'll consider both believer baptism and infant baptism and speak through what both sides believe biblically and why we land where we do. And then in the third week together, having explored our differences, I want us to celebrate what unites all Christians and talk through what everyone can rejoice in and agree on in terms of what baptism is and what happens when we get baptized. Two words of announcement as we do this. One. Along the way, as we preach this beginning next week, we'll have time for question and answer. I'd imagine that as you go through this series, it's going to begin to make you think about baptism and how you think about baptism and other people's baptism and your own baptism. As you do that, we want to give ample opportunity for you to ask questions. So after the preaching next week, we'll have time for question and answer. At the same time, we'll also gather midweek throughout these three, series, three weeks throughout this series, so that those of you who want to press in further and ask more questions and talk through this, even talk about how it applies personally to you and, and your questions, we want to gather to do that. So if you've got questions about baptism, if you've trusted in Jesus and have never been baptized, or if you've got questions about whether your baptism is valid, those kinds of things, you want to make sure that you take advantage of these times together, right? So we can dialogue about these things together. Our hope is that we'll take everyone who's trusted in Jesus and needs to be baptized. And on July 31st, we're slotting out that Sunday. We're going to drive to a nearby lake and we'll dump everybody who needs to be baptized under the waters and have a party like Exodus 15 at the beach. That's the hope. So that's where we're headed. As we get there, I want to invite you to pray. Pray for yourselves. Pray for me. Pray for this church that we would go through these weeks with wisdom, with unity, with clarity, with humility that we would do all these things well. Today, we'll be briefly in Acts 15 to consider how a young church handles theological disagreements. So if you want to turn to Acts 15, as you do that, let me pray for us.
Father, I thank you for these brothers and sisters. As they open their Bibles to Acts 15, open that portion to us. Open that portion to us and open us to that portion. That the Holy Spirit would come and make the words come to our hearts and make us submit to the words on the page. We pray that you would give to this baby church the ability to handle theological disagreement with humility, with unity, with clarity, with wisdom, with grace. We pray that you would set a frame for how we are to enter into this conversation today. Do more than I know to ask. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 15, we'll start at verse 1. This is what it says. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Let's pause there for a second. Here's the background of what's happening in Acts 15. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen again. Jesus ascended into heaven as the Savior of the world. He promises he's going to come back, but till he does, he says that he's going to send the Holy Spirit to live in the hearts of believers, to help them to live the Christian life and become new men and women, and to be on mission for Jesus, spreading this gospel everywhere they go. Acts 2, just like Jesus says, it happens, the Spirit comes down, dwells in the hearts of believers. Acts 3, they preach just like Jesus told them to do, and thousands come to faith in Jesus Christ. And the wild thing about the book of Acts, what surprised everyone is, it's not just the Jews that are coming to faith. It's not just the people who have historically, like we're reading in the book of Acts, old Exodus always been the people of God who are becoming believers. But now, surprise to everyone, the Gentiles are also coming to faith. Now you have to see how huge that is because from the beginning of the world, hear that, from as soon as history began, the Gentiles have always been on the out. Gentiles just means everyone who's not a Jew. So in the Old Testament, God chose the Jews as his people. They were on the in. Everyone else was a Gentile on the out. And now, because of the death and resurrection and salvation of Jesus, the Gentiles who were on the out are now in. Now when they're in, this is an idolatrous, pagan, you know, pig flesh eating, temple prostitute sleeping, pagan Gentiles. When they've been brought in, that raises a huge question in the early church. And that is, how do they come in? Do they just come in by believing and that's it? Or don't they have to do something like the people of God have always had to do? Don't they have to sort of do what we do together and we'll become Christians? How can the Gentiles just go straight to repenting and believing? And the major question is, the people of God from the beginning have been circumcised. And if the Gentiles are going to come in, don't they have to get circumcised as well? We'll talk through circumcision next week and, and what it is and what it was about. Just I want you to hear now that from the beginning, from as early as Genesis, circumcision was given as a sign of the covenant, a sign of God's people. It was the sign that marked off who belonged to God. And so all the males of God's people were circumcised. And it carried with it great symbolic and spiritual realities and pointed to great realities of faith. The idea that even as your skin was cut off, so if you did not stay true to God, you too would be cut off 
There were all kinds of symbols and realities to which this circumcision, this sign of the covenant pointed. And so the great question that was being asked was, if the Gentiles are coming in and becoming a part of us, the people of God, don't they have to get circumcised? Don't they need to receive the sign of the covenant? In fact, that's the question, Acts 15.1. The, the question that's being raised is, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. As you read through the New Testament, you'll see that many pages of your Bible are devoted to this question of, do the Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be saved? And the false teaching, as we'll see, that began to spring up everywhere was, yes, they can't just repent and believe. They've got to repent, believe, and be circumcised if they're truly going to be saved. Now you may hear that and you go, why would they get that wrong? I mean, are they really going to assign a person's eternal destiny, whether they're going to hell forever or heaven forever, to the removal of some skin? Doesn't that seem, honestly, a bit immature or simple? But here's what I want you to hear. We do that same thing today all the time. What was circumcision? It was a covenant sign. And the error here is attaching salvific significance to a covenant sign. The error here was attaching salvific significance. That is, this is necessary and essential for salvation. That apart from this you cannot be saved and with this you can. Attaching that kind of significance to this sign of the covenant is what made it error. Are the covenant signs important? Yes. Are they essential for salvation? No. And so when they attached salvific significance to the sign of the covenant, they were in error. Whether that by doing them, you were saved, or by not doing them, you were damned, both were in error. The, the lie that's beginning to spread is, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. Do this and you're in. Don't do this and you're out. And the apostles want to say, that is not right. Are the sacraments, hear me, I am not downplaying the importance of baptism or the Lord's Supper. We'll come to communion as we do every week in a few minutes. What I am saying is, though they are significant, they are not the center. A few months ago, Binu, Dennis, myself, and Sibby, we drove up to Boston Thankfully, in Dennis's SUV and not Sydney's clown car. But we spent six hours on the road there, spent 12 hours in conversation, then spent the whole night talking more, spent another six hours driving back. In total, we spent some 30 hours thinking through, praying, reading, talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper. Important. 30 hours of busy men's lives gone to this thing. When we came out of it, Matt Cruz, one of the lead pastors of the church plant in Boston, the church that, that planted us, we went and met with six of their pastors, 12 of us in a room, just talking through this for hours. One of the things that Matt wrote coming out of that time together, I want to read you today, because it was good. He wrote this for the church in Boston, but I think applicable to us. We are not sacramentalists centering our theology and practice on baptism and communion, like if we just get those right, we are all set. Or if we don't get those exactly right, we are doomed. No. It is the good news and the preached word of the person and work of Christ 
and the gospel promises of God in his person and work that are of central importance. This is what Jesus' apostle Paul was getting at when he said, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. 1 Corinthians 1.17 Whether you are baptized or not does not determine whether you are saved or not. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus alone, and we are glad for that. We still want to do the sacraments faithfully and well, but they are not at the center. That is really well said. Hear me, said my road. These things are hugely important, wonderfully important. They are gifts to Jesus' church. We do not diminish them. We do not ignore them. But we do not raise them to the center. We do not put a fist over things that are secondary. And that's precisely what the people in Acts 15 did. They made as central and significant, most significant, what was secondary. They had taken a covenant sign, which was back then circumcision, and elevated it to be of central importance, and in doing so, they were beginning to confuse state and national borders, beginning to confuse closed fist and open hand. Unless you are circumcised, they said, you cannot be saved. And so verse 1 tells us that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate. That's the scripture's way of saying they were ready to throw down. They got into a theological fistfight because these guys were beginning to pollute the gospel. And that's what this does. This pollutes a gospel issue. Rather than this being salvation through Jesus alone, they added something to the equation. So rather than faith in Jesus equals salvation, they said faith in Jesus plus circumcision equals salvation. And the apostles could not sit back and let that kind of adultery to the gospel happen. And so they had good dialogue and debate. It says no small dissension and debate. I want you to hear that. Good, robust, passionate dialogue, and yes, even debate for things that are matter, that for things that are gospel significance is a good and necessary thing. But that debate didn't settle the issue. And so we read verse 2 and following. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done to them. So here's the scene. They're down there, and they're having this disagreement. And so the church sends them to Jerusalem, to the council of all the apostles and elders, so they can hash things, these things out and come back with an answer. There's a theological disagreement brewing, and so they send them back to Jerusalem with this question. Along the way, Paul and Barnabas have to go through Phoenicia, through Samaria. And what's on their lips? Everywhere they go, they're not stirring up theological disagreements. Everywhere they go, they're talking about the gospel and our mission and telling all the brothers how the Gentiles were being converted so that it says it brought great joy to all the brothers. That's a small detail, but I want you to pay attention for a second. These guys are headed on their way up for a theological showdown. And yet, what's central on their lips? What are they spending their time speaking about? The gospel and mission 
and conversions and how the Gentiles are becoming believers and everyone is rejoicing. You see, they don't have time to get bogged down with secondary things when primary things are at stake. They don't have time to work out secondary issues and only spend their time there when they have people who need to know Jesus. I want us to hear that. What would be the point if we have the most perfect theology of baptism, yet none of us believe the gospel, live on mission, so that we have anyone to even baptize? What would be the point if we come up with the perfect articulation of baptism so that Jesus himself would nod in improvement? But we're not on mission. We're not majoring on the majors, but instead majoring on the minors so that no one is coming to faith. No one needs to be baptized. That's a good question I'm asking my heart and soul. Because if we're not believing the gospel and living on mission in such a way that we can tell of what God is doing and people are coming to faith, then these things are just things that we do because we like theological discussion. But it's a huge significance here. As Paul and Barnabas are on their way up to this theological showdown, they can't stop telling everyone about the gospel and about what God was doing and about the conversions on their mission so that the result was everyone was rejoicing. Well, not everyone. Because not everyone's happy. They never are. Verse 5. This is what you read. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Two things quickly I want you to notice about that. So the apostles come. They give their report. Everyone's being saved. Let's talk through this. And the Pharisees go, wait, wait, before you break out the bubbly and before everyone starts celebrating, we've got a small problem. It's good, good that they're coming in, but if they're really going to be in, we've got to do circumcision, right? And so it says the believers of the party of the Pharisees said it is necessary that you do circumcision and keep the laws of Moses. Two things that I want you to notice there. One, how amazing is it that Pharisees are in Acts 15? Did you notice that? Pharisees, they're not Pharisees anymore. They're, they're believers who are a part of the party of the Pharisees. So what does that mean? These are Pharisees who before Jesus have hated him and ready to kill him, who since him have repented and believed in Jesus. Isn't it amazing that in Acts 15, when the church is gathering to work through this theological disagreement, Pharisees were there because their hearts had been turned to the Lord. That should be a great encouragement that even the Pharisees who hated Jesus, who literally got Jesus killed, had repented and believed in him and were a part of this council. But the other thing I want you to notice is that sanctification takes time. Who would you expect would bring up the question of the law and, and throw a fly in the ointment but the Pharisees? They were the ones who when Jesus was around, when he would bring sinners around, they're the ones who always had a problem with it. Jesus had to tell the story of the prodigal son to say, look, this sinner is coming in, but some of you older ones who always do what's right are grumbling because they're not doing everything perfectly. When Jesus would sit and eat with sinners, it was the Pharisees who would say, why does he eat with them? Why doesn't he get them to do these things? And so though they are saved by Jesus, they're not changed overnight. Jesus is still working on them and you and me. Because sanctification is a process. And so the Pharisees come in. Everyone's ready to rejoice because the Gentiles are being saved. But the Pharisees bring up this debate. When, when I think of the Pharisees here, I think of Debbie Downer from Saturday Night Live. 
Have you, have you seen that skit? Joe introduced me to Debbie Downer. So anytime anyone's ready to celebrate about anything, then comes Debbie Downer with some depressing news, right? So you go, oh, Florida's a great place to vacation. And then Debbie Downer will go, yeah, but there are killer hurricanes. Wah, wah. And that's how the show goes, right? So here you got the Gentiles are in. From the beginning of the history of the world, they've been on the out. Now they're repenting of their sins. They trust in Jesus. The Holy Spirit came to them just like us. But they got to be circumcised. Womp, womp. Right? And that's the Pharisees. Look at verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, there's our word again, good, robust dialogue. And even debate for things that matter is a good thing. Peter stood up and said to them, brothers. Pause there for a second. Do they have debate? Yes. But while they do that debate, is their relationship intact? They are brothers. They were brothers before they got into this debate. They're brothers after they get into this debate. They're brothers while they're in this debate. Peter gets up and he doesn't say, you Pharisees. No, these are brothers. I want you to hear that. In Acts 15, there is no good guys and bad guys. There's just people who have been converted to Jesus. And both sides equally think they are doing what God wants them to do. No good guys and bad guys in Acts 15. Believers, brothers, with both of them holding tightly to what they hold to because they honestly believe that's what God wants them to do. That is absolutely important because I don't want us to just look at Acts 15 to see what they were disagreeing about. I want us to see how they handled theological disagreement. This church was just 10 maybe years old, early in the history of the church, and already there was this theological issue that threatened to unravel all that Jesus had done, and yet these men engage in this dialogue in a way that preserves their unity. They are brothers. Jesus had taken the most unlikely of folks, brought them into the same family. They had become brothers, and no theological disagreement was going to separate that. Please hear that. Please hear that. He says, brothers, you know, verse 7, that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Into this debate, and there's been lots of debate now. It says, after there had been a good amount of debate, Peter gets up. And he says, brothers, calling all of them in unity, in humility, saying to all of them, listen, you know that God chose me to speak to the Gentiles. If you go back to Acts 10, Peter is chosen to speak to a man named Cornelius and the Spirit comes on Gentiles. And he says, you know that God chose me to speak to them. And when I spoke to them, they believed just like we did. And the Spirit came on them just like he came on us. And God made no distinction. God didn't say, wait, before I give them the Spirit, I need them to do this. So why are we making this distinction? And why are we adding on them the burden of the law when we nor our fathers have ever been able to keep the law? 
Remember, circumcision is the sign of the old covenant. The, the sign of the covenant that said, you keep this law. And yet, Peter's saying, Jesus came precisely because we couldn't keep the law. So why are you going to put on them a yoke that we weren't able to bear? Jesus died for us because we didn't keep the law perfectly. So why are you going to put this yoke on them? No, God has made no distinction. Let us not make any either. And then he says, but I believe, we believe, verse 11, we will be saved through the grace of Jesus, just as they will. Paul, Peter is saying, listen, signs are important, but they do not save. Jesus saves. Circumcision doesn't save. Baptism doesn't save. The Lord's Supper does not save. Jesus alone saves. He says that and basically everyone shuts up. Verse 12 it says, And the assembly fell silent. From verse 12 to 21, Paul and Barnabas get up and they start talking about the gospel again and how these Gentiles are being converted. And then James, Jesus' brother, gets up and he's sort of the elder in this council meeting. And he gets up and he says, Listen, what, what these men are saying is true. Listen to me now. God has included the Gentiles just like he said he would. And then James ends by saying, I say, my judgment is also, verse 19, that we do not put this trouble on the Gentiles as they come to know the Lord, but rather, and then he gives this small list of what they are to do. They're to avoid food that's given to idols. They're avoiding sexual morality, things that are strangled, and blood. And James says, let's write this letter and send it to the Gentiles. I'll give you two seconds on this because this can be a little bit of a confusing section. They just said the law is not going to be a burden to you. You do not have to get circumcised. And then James says, but make sure you avoid these foods and don't drink things that have blood in them. Why does he give those restrictions? It's because he wants to communicate to these Gentiles, you're absolutely free. You're not under the burden of the law. And yet, in that freedom... Make sure you live in a way that you can relate to your Jewish brothers and sisters. So submit your freedom for their sake. And if they observe dietary restrictions, you do the same so that you can sit at the same table and eat together. It's something that takes Christian maturity to understand and live this part of this letter. Because what he's saying is, look, freedom when the gospel is at stake is never going to be compromised. If you say it's Jesus plus anything, we will fight you to the death. We're not giving in. But we will not exploit and use that freedom when loving our brother is at stake. And so if that means I don't eat meat with blood in it, fine. If that's what it takes for me to relate to my Jewish brothers and sisters. Do you see what's happening here? By the end of this theological disagreement, the Jews are loving the Gentiles and saying, you don't have to get circumcised. And the Gentiles are loving the Jews and saying, we're not going to eat that stuff if that offends you. And both are bending over backwards to love one another, to be united, to be one. This theological disagreement that threatened to destroy everything, and yet when it's all said and done, they're going to try and outdo one another in efforts of love to each other. When this is all said and done, in verse 22 onwards, they send the letter... Back to this church of Gentiles, I'll read you just the last five verses, 30 to 35. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, and when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, 
encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they sent them off in peace by the brothers to whom, to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others. Just a, a, a quick thing I want you to notice. In verse 22, it says, the whole church sent this letter. That means disagreeing Pharisees had come alongside Peter and James and all the others, and the whole church drafted this letter and sent it off. One. And then when they get this letter, it says they rejoiced because of the encouragement. And then when they had spent time encouraging one another, they sent off this delegate back in peace. The result of this theological disagreement that threatened to unravel this young church plant was that rather than being divided, it made them one, the whole church, it gave them joy, and it gave them peace. My hope for our church, coming out of these three weeks and for the life of our church, is that words like peace, words like the whole church, words like encouragement, words like rejoiced greatly would mark us and how we live and love with one another. Did they have passionate disagreement, dialogue and debate? Yes. Did they do it as brothers? Yes. Were they brothers before this disagreement and after this disagreement and through the disagreement? Yes. This is how a young church should handle theological disagreement. I want you to hear this for a second. There is no more diverse or polarized people than the, the people of Acts 15. This should not happen. You think of who's in the room in Acts 15. You've got Pharisees who were the leaders of the law and who hated Jesus. And now those Pharisees who had been called rabbi forever have to submit themselves to fishermen Peter and James and John. And these two were enemies just weeks ago, just years ago, and now they're in the same room for Jesus. And then into that room, at least they're all Jewish, you've got Gentiles who've been worshiping Aphrodite and eating things that they would never eat and, and sleeping with temple prostitutes, and they're all in one big assembly. If there's ever a room that should divide and tear into a thousand pieces, it's Acts 15, and yet they remain as one. And I want to tell you, even at Seven Mile Road, I am often amazed and surprised at the unity that God has given our church plan. At least on paper, this should not happen. Right? We come from different ethnicities. Even within those of us who are of the dominant culture here, they come from very different backgrounds. Churches that should not get along. And I'm always stunned at the unity that's here because it's brought by God. And I need God to keep it among us. You know what I love about San Mauro? We'll have charismatic folks who come here, and they'll go through the service, and they go, these guys read things together in unison. They confess a creed. This is the most conservative place I've ever been. And then we have conservative folks here who come, and some folks are shouting hallelujah and lifting hands, and they go, this is the most charismatic place I've ever been. And I love that no one is comfortable here. <laughs> That's good. Right? Jews loving Gentiles and saying, you don't need to be circumcised. And Gentiles saying, we love you and we won't eat what you don't eat. And out of this theological disagreement is born great unity, great encouragement. All the brothers rejoicing. And the last verse, the very last verse in 35 says, 
And Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Do you know what that means? That means after this theological disagreement was done, Paul and Barnabas were free to get back to doing what they do, which is preach the gospel and live on mission. Isn't that awesome? They do not end on theological disagreement. Once they've worked through this, they go right back to what is closed fist, primary, majoring on the majors. We have gospel work to do. And there's people who need to know Jesus. So let's get to that. And they do. So let's do the same. Let's pray. Our Lord, we give you thanks for this day together on your word. I thank you for these brothers and sisters who have sat patiently under it and heard it. Now I pray that your Holy Spirit would take this word deep into our hearts and that it would bear much fruit. I pray that words like unity, humility, rejoicing, peace, encouragement, the whole church, these would be the words that mark our experience here at Seven Mile Road. If you leave it to us, we will tear one another apart. And so we ask the Holy Spirit, which made us one, to keep us one. Even as Jesus died and we believed in him and we became children of God and so brothers and sisters with each other, so may you preserve forever our unity. We will live forever as one here so that we can live forever as one in your kingdom to come. Walk us by your grace through these next three weeks. Help us to do this faithfully and well. We pray in humility, saying we need you, Jesus. In your name, amen.